today so many Christian women have been seduced by feminism and have embraced this lethal ideology that destroys womanhood and brings dishonor to the gospel and actually harms the whole society. So the older women, the godly women in the church, they have a duty of wisening up the younger ones. see church, if your understanding of church is that you come to Sunday to this building here for two hours and that's it. You sing some hymns, you hear preaching, and then you go home. You have a very poor view, an unbiblical view of what church is. Once upon a time, there was a movement to set the women free set the women free from their traditional roles of society. This movement wants to give the women greater freedom to exercise public roles. This movement wants to set the women free from the clutches of the home, releasing them from the chains of taking care of the family, leading the women to a sexual revolution where they could express freely their sexual and moral freedom. If I was to ask you what movement was that, what would you say? <coughs> yes, most of us would think that there was the sexual revolution, the, the feminist movement in the 60s and 70s. But actually, it's not. Actually, this goes back to the first century. During the first century in the Roman Empire, there was the rise of the new Roman woman or the new Roman wife. And you pardon me with the cough, but let's see how long we can go here. Bruce Winter, he has a book called Roman Wives, Roman Widows, The Appearance of the New Women in the Pauline Communities. And he shows how during the, between 100 B.C. and 100 A.D., a change took place in the Roman Empire. And especially the women, the understanding of their roles, their appearance in society, their ethical conduct. Especially around 44 B.C., a new type of wife was emerging in Rome. It's documented that this, these new Roman wives, these new Roman women, their sexual morals were low and they, pursue an they were pursuing an extensive social life at the, expense of the, at the expense of family responsibilities, meaning they're putting the family aside in order for them to enjoy themselves. Philip Toner, he says, This new kind of woman was shocking and scandalous, even to the Roman culture. The emergence of this movement was so disturbing to the status quo that Augustus, the king, the emperor, issued legislation against it. 
associated with the new paradigm was behavior that gave it the look of an ancient sexual revolution with wealthy women displaying themselves in permissive clothing and hairstyles and seeking the sexual freedoms normally reserved for men. Bruce Winter, he says, most, signif most significant, however, is the fact that in 18 BC and again AD 9, Augustus, Caesar, legislated on marriage, remarriage, and divorce. And here's the reason why he started creating laws about marriage, remarriage, and divorce. The reason for this was his concern about flagrant promiscuous marital unfaithfulness among Roman women of social status. This unprecedented move in Roman law arose from his belief, look at that, that the licentious and adulterous conduct of married women with younger single men who were themselves avoiding marriage was responsible for the falling birth rate among Roman citizens and the breakdown of family values. That's in Rome, first century. And we cannot deny that the temptation for the women in the church was to embrace the new revolution, the new movement. As you see the, the preppy, the, the beautiful, the rich women in town behaving like that, the temptation was for the women to start embracing that new lifestyle, that new movement. And Paul is reminding the women in the church that they are not the new Roman wives, but they are a new creation in Christ who must follow God's standards and not the culture's standards. So just like today, so many Christian women have been seduced by feminism and have embraced this lethal ideology that destroys womanhood and brings dishonor to the gospel and actually harms the whole society. So the teaching of Titus 2 is as important today as it was 2,000 years ago. The women in the Cretan churches, the women in the churches in Crete, just like the women in the American churches, they must be brought back to their senses and to embrace their true identity in Christ, not in the world. Amen? And that's what we see here in Titus chapter 2. So, as we move with our outline, we saw, we already moved through verse 1, the call to pastors, then we moved to verse 2, the call to older men, so we dealt with the older men, then we were dealing with the older women. And now we're going to come to the younger women in the church. So, just as a way of reviewing where we stopped last Lord's Day, the call to older women to live sound or healthy lifestyles that adorn sound doctrine. And we know that we are going to move to the younger women, but it's important to keep in mind, as you see, as we're going to move to the younger women, the older women are still in the background, okay? Because the older women are supposed to be walking alongside the younger women. So as we are talking about the Younger women, keep in mind that the older women are also involved here. And we saw, we saw how the older women are called to live holy lives and to teach what is good. The women in the church, the older godly women in the church, they have this God-given duty to teach the younger ones. It's a... Uh, 
It's a pathetic, unbiblical, ungodly situation when you have churches full of women with life experience. And they're hoarding all the experience to themselves instead of sharing with the younger ones. This is demonic. It's unbiblical. Older women, the Lord has put you through so many trials, has brought you through so many pains, and show you so much of His mercy, so you can now invest in the younger ones and help them. We saw that it's a very crucial word that Paul uses here. Uh, it's hard to translate into English. The sofronitso, sofrost, sophia, related to wisdom. Uh, the idea is to the older women coming as alongside the younger ones and waking them up, causing them to wise up in the Lord, bring them to their senses. They're being enticed by the culture. And the older godly women are supposed to come alongside and wake up. That's not the life that the Lord wants for you. Sophronizo, the, the word that Paul used here, involves the cultivation of discernment and right priorities. So the older women, the godly women in the church, they have a duty of wisening up the younger ones. So we see, we, we saw that last Lord's Day, and it's important for us to remember that if you see church, if your understanding of church is that you come to Sunday to this building here for two hours, and that's it. You sing some hymns, you hear preaching, and then you go home. You have a very poor view, an unbiblical view of what church is. Because you cannot fulfill what Paul is telling us to do here if your view of church is coming to this building on Sunday for two hours. How are you going to invest? How are you going to mentor? How are you going to wise up women, the younger ones, if you're not spending time with them, walking with them? There's just so much that the pastors, the elders can do. I will not, the elders in this church, will not meet with women on one-on-one. I'm not going with young women for coffee. Right? Yes, I'll meet with younger women, with my wife present, or maybe with another elder, another man involved. But there is a limitation. I'm not going to younger women's kitchen to help them. That's the duty that God has given to the older women to do that. Amen? So there is a call to the older women to do that, to come alongside and help where the male pastors are not be going. They're not going there. I have a command to teach and preach. Embody as much as I can as, as a pastor. But there is this aspect of the body where the older godly women are supposed to come alongside and do what the pastors cannot be doing. And this principle applies to all Christians, not just the older women. I would say here, if we have a 20-year-old man who is saved, a young man, you're 20, 22, and you are saved, you should be growing in holiness to disciple others. <coughs> you have a duty to do that. The same with younger girls. If you're in your 20s, you are saved. You have a duty to be growing in holiness to help the other ones, the younger ones. It's just like at home. In a house, we have five kids. 
And it's always, the older ones are always helping the younger ones, right? So even now we have Stephen helping with Apollo. And the same principle applies to the church. The older you are, you've got to be getting and helping coming alongside the younger ones. Think about how we need in the church an army, an army of unsung heroines, the unsung heroes, those godly older women who have been spending their lives helping other women and who are never in the world, in society, celebrated. But they're celebrated in heaven because God's eyes see and rewards them. That's what we need in the church. There is a temptation for women, especially younger women in particular, to be relatable, accepted by other women in society. And the temptation becomes to compromise the faith. Therefore, the older godly women must come alongside. You have God's commandment upon your life to come alongside the younger ones to help them. Remember, we saw about the... Look at verse 11, chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 11. The false teachers must be silenced. But the older godly women must speak up. The false teachers must be silenced. But the godly older women in the church must speak up. You have a duty to speak to the younger ones. You are not called by the Lord to be this marble statue that everybody just watches you. You need to speak up to the younger ones. Amen? You need to come alongside and speak. Satan is yelling. The culture is yelling at the younger ones. And while you're going to be quiet, just walk around, just watch me. No, you've got to come alongside and speak to them. Teach them verbally also. And may this be the goal of every woman in Christ. To grow in godliness and holiness in order to glorify the Lord by helping other women to love Christ and walk in the fear of the Lord. I was reading an article from Elizabeth Elliot. And she said, It would help younger women to know that there were a few listening ears when they don't know what to do with an, with an uncommunicative husband, a 25-pound turkey, or a two-year-old tantrum. It's doubtful that the Apostle Paul had in mind Bible classes or seminars or books when he spoke of teaching younger women. He means the simple things, the everyday example, the willingness to take time from one's own concerns to pray with the anxious mother, to walk with her the way of the cross, with, with its tremendous demands of patience, selflessness, and loving kindness. She says, and to show her, the younger ones, in the ordinariness of Monday through Saturday, how to keep a quiet heart. These lessons will come perhaps most convincingly through rocking a baby, doing some mending, cooking a supper, or cleaning a refrigerator. Through such an example, one young woman, single or married, Christian or not, may catch a glimpse of the mystery of charity and the glory of womanhood. And Elizabeth Elliot, she calls the Watts, the women of Titus II. That's what we need in church, the Watts, 
the women of Titus too. And may the Lord give us more and more watts in this church. Amen. So let us move to part four. The call to younger women. So Paul says that the older women are to cultivate holiness, teach what is good, and so train the, one, the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, holy, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And what Paul is doing here, he's painting a portrait of a, a beautiful woman. You know, women are prone to look at pictures, right? Women love looking at pictures of other women, like, whoa, that's so beautiful, I want to be like that. And what Paul is doing, he's painting a, a portrait of a beautiful woman. Here's what you must be looking for. Instead of looking at the Roman coins and seeing the new Roman woman, no, no, look at this portrait here and, and try to imitate this woman here. And Paul uses, I'm going to use four L's here for these strokes that he's painting, this portrait. And that is learners, lovers, lovely, and laborers. Learners, lovers, lovely, and laborers. That's how Paul is painting this portrait of a, a beautiful woman. One of Satan's greatest targets is marriage, is the family. Why? Because the marriage is a beautiful picture of Christ and the church. And Paul is saying that there is no place for the feminist revolution. There is no place for the new Roman wife in the church. There is only place for a new creation in Christ in the church. So let's go to see the first thing that Paul is painting here of a beautiful young woman. And the first thing is that younger women must be learners. Younger women must be learners. Okay, he says, And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. The first portrait of a beautiful and Christ-like woman is humility to learn. A teachable heart is a gorgeous heart. Amen? Humility is beautiful. The only way that the older women can disciple, help, and teach the younger ones is what? If the younger ones are open. Because you cannot teach an unteachable person. So if the younger ones are not humble enough to be willing and open to receive, there will be no way for this mandate to be accomplished. So we see that this duty is twofold. It's a duty for the older women and to the younger ones. The older ones are commanded to invite the younger ones to their homes, open their hearts, and the younger women are also commanded to open their hearts and open their homes for the older ones. So, younger women, let the godlier older women in church come into your lives, come into your homes, come into your hearts. Open your hearts, open your homes for godly older women to come. Open the place of that secret where nobody can see so you can get help. Because we are always learning. We are e either learning from God or we are learning from the world. We are always learning something. So please, humble yourself and learn from godly women. And look at Titus 2. Look at verse 11. Paul says... 
For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Even younger women have been saved. And then he says what? Teaching. The ESV has training. Paideo, the verb, paideia, teaching. And that's what happens when Christ's grace invades your life. Once you are saved, that grace humbles you that you become a learner. So Christian people must be the most humble people of all. Because God's grace comes and, and helps us to humble ourselves so we can learn. So the grace of Christ comes and teaches us. We are eager to learn. Teachable people. Amen. So, ladies, put to death pride. Put to death that pride that tells you that you do not have anything else to learn from more godly people. Put to death that pride that does not allow you to receive exhortation and correction. Otherwise, that sin of pride will kill you. So the first portrait of a beautiful, godly woman is a learner. She is humble. She loves learning how to follow the Lord better. Amen? Next, not only that, but they must be lovers. And so train the young women to love, to love their husbands and to love their children. We live in a narcissistic society. It's all about self-love. It's all about loving yourself. And the thing is, the more you love yourself, the more you destroy yourself. I was reading an article from the time, and that's not a Christian at all, article. And the title of the, the article was, Self-Love is Making Us Lonely. And it says, not coming from a Christian's perspective at all, it says, Praised, extolled by politicians and pop stars alike, it seems like everyone is talking about self-love these days. In a Vogue makeup tutorial, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez explains that loving herself is the one foundation of everything. Self-love has become, the article says, the core tenet of modern wellness culture, with the promise that what follows self-love is good health and freedom. Then the, ar the article goes on to show how that's not the truth. And then it says, Study after study shows that we are living inside a growing loneliness epidemic. When, when self-love becomes entangled with self-absorption and materialism, serious consequences emerge for our collective mental health. Studies show that mu too much focus on oneself is associated with anxiety and depression. Past research has also documented the vicious feedback loop of consump consumption and loneliness. When we purchase material possessions, even in the name of self-love, we surprisingly, surprisingly feel lonely. So we try to soothe ourselves through buy more. But this only makes us feel worse. So what is the solution? Biblical love. Christ's love. That's self-sacrifice. That you deny yourself. That you love others more than yourself. And the younger women in our society are being bombarded with this teaching to love themselves above everyone, everything else. Social media, brothers and sisters, that's a flood from hell with the waters of self-love. Social media 
so much of that is just how much you love yourself. Notice here that Paul says nothing about loving yourself. It's all about loving others. And we need to be encouraged to love others. Hebrews 10, 24 says that we all must stir up one another to what? To love and good works. So the first subject here is related to women who are married. The younger women who are married, especially in, in the first century, younger women would, get, women would get married early in their lives, early teens. So Paul says, and so train the young women to love their what? Husbands. For those women who are married, the, the object of love uh, right after Jesus Christ is their husbands. The word that Paul uses here is a very unique word in the New Testament, only used here in the New Testament. Philandros. From phileo, philos, and the under man, husband. A lover of your husband. And here we see, you can see by the word, that the, the Bible makes no difference between agape and phileo. I know you have heard wonderful sermons, but it's not sound where people try to talk about there is this agape love and there is the phileo love. It's all love in the Bible. You can see here. Do you think Paul is telling the women just to love their husbands with a friendly love? No, it's a sacrificial love. So phileo is used as synonym with agape. I remember some... I noticed also that the, the, the women are not supposed to love their wives, okay? Because homosexuality is sin and, and, and there is nothing of approved of homosexuality. So you see that Paul doesn't say, and train the younger women to love their wives. No, it's their husband. But I also remember some years ago reading a book that was very popular called Love and Respect by Emerson Egridge. Has anybody here read that book, Love and Respect? Good, I read that. I see some of you like, ah, should I raise? <laughs> the back cover of the book says, A wife has one driving need to feel loved. When that need is met, she's happy. A husband has one driving need to feel respected. When that need is met, he's happy. It's interesting that Paul tells the wives to do what? Love their husbands. And the whole theology of that book crumbles because the whole premise and theology of that book is that women only need love and men only need respect. And Paul is actually saying, women, wives, love your husbands. We need love. Husbands need love. So Paul says that the older godly women are supposed to come alongside and help the younger ones to love their husbands. And you might say, wow, do young women need to learn how to love their husbands? Women, aren't women more loving than men by nature? Do they need to learn how to love? And then we need to remember that God is the one who defines how we love one another, right? God is the one who defines love, not our own imagination, not the society. God defines what love is, how to love. 
And yes, women are more naturally loving than men. But because of sin, sin perverts their love. So they need to be taught by more godly women what true love is. I like what Doriani and Phillips, they say, they, they say that despite the way that love is expressed naturally through a woman's heart, the effects of sin have crippled this divinely bestowed grace. For this reason, Christian women need not so much to fall in love as to learn to love as God calls them. Hmm. And I, I, I like what Gerald Bray says in his commentary because he helps us to see, especially in the first century, how the young women needed to learn how to love their husbands. He says, The use of the verb sofronitzo to teach is a reminder of the complex nature of this task. It was not a, it was not a case of learning a few basics like what the men like to eat and so on, but of developing a new relationship of which the younger women had no previous experience. He says, the need for this was all the greater, considering that most of these women had probably married in their teens. They had never been away from home and may never have met, let alone socialized with men outside their immediate family. A number of the husbands would also have been considerably older than they were and had higher expectations than might have been the case with men of their own age. So you think about these girls in the early teens, 13, 14 years old, getting married to men who are in their middle 20s. They had been just at home. They don't know it's arranged marriage. Much of the world is arranged marriage. They don't know that man. And now they're living with that man. They're in a covenant with that man. And they need to learn how to love that man. They need the older women to come alongside and help them how to love their husbands. The whole idea of romantic love that we have today was regarded dangerous because it upset the social order by introducing an irrational passion into everyday life. That's why they did not like this. Oh, I just fell in love, so I'm marrying this person. They argued that that could harm the society. And uh, in a lot of parts of the world, think about... Up until some years ago, not long ago, marriages were arranged, even in the U.S. It's not very long ago that people started being able to be free to choose who they could marry. In a lot of parts of the world, they still have arranged marriages. And the Christian women, they need to learn how to love their husbands because they are in a covenant with them. In our Western society, a man and a woman fall in love and then they get married. But so much in the, in the East, marriages were less romantic. Often the two got married and they had to learn how to love each other. There is a, a, a beautiful a gravestone inscription found from the 2nd century B.C. It says, Julius Bassus to Otacilia Paula. That this is inscription was found. It says, his sweetest wife. And then he, he used that same Greek word. 
loving her husband and loving her, her children. She lived with him unblameably 30 years. So even, even the unbelievers prize this godly attribute of being loving, loving their husbands. And let me tell you to the unmarried women here, because you might say, how about me? I'm not married. Some of you will nev never marry, and most of you will marry. Very few women are called to singleness. But let me remind you that you don't start preparing to love your husband when you get married. You start preparing yourself today when you're single. You start today by walking with those women whom you respect, the older godly women in your church. Dating a bunch of different guys will not help you in your future marriage. They're not going to help you. Social media and movies from Hollywood, that will not mentor you well in your future marriage either. Amen? You need godly older women to help you. The older godly women are supposed to come alongside and help the younger ones to love their husband. And love is a process. I was thinking about love is a process where you grow in forgiving the spouse. Love is a process where you grow in patience towards your spouse. Love is a process where you learn to overlook a lot of offenses. Love is a process where you learn how to encourage your spouse to pursue Jesus Christ. Love is a process where you learn to biblically confront your husband when there is sin. And their young women need to learn how to love their husband. So they need the help of older godly women to come alongside and help them. They do not know how to do it. Sin teaches us how to love ourselves. Right? Sin is this wonderful teacher that teaches us magically how to love ourselves. Sin is deeply self-centered while marriage requires sacrifice of the self. Our culture promotes divorce, adultery, unfaithfulness, and we need the older women in the church encouraging the younger ones to be faithful, to persevere under the difficulties. So there is the sin in the, in the wife's heart. There is the sin in the women's heart. And there is also the sin in the husband's heart. That's why they need to learn how to love. Besides the women's own sins, there is the sin within the husband's. I have heard from other women how hard it is to be married to their husband. Rachel would never say that. It's so easy. <laughs> I heard from other women how hard their husbands are. You know what is funny? Is, uh, she's always reading these biographies of Susanna, Spurgeon, all the wives of these pastors. And then she was reading one from uh, Sarah Edwards. The title of the book was Married to a Difficult Man. <laughs> and the book was right at... In the living room, she was reading that book. And somebody from the church came and looked at the book and then looked at me. <laughs> like, no, she's, she's trying to help other ladies in the church. <laughs> but the truth is that we are not that lovable. We are not. Sin makes us men hard to be loved. That's weird. I don't hear any amen from the ladies in this church. That was the time that the ladies would, amen. 
The sin in us makes us hard to be loved. That's why you need the older godly ladies to come alongside and help the younger ones to love the difficult husbands. Many couples end up divorcing the first years of marriage. Or if they don't divorce in the first year of marriage, it's a lot of the issues in the first year of marriage that will lead to the divorce later. So the young women need the older godly women to help them walk through those rough first years. I have no idea how Rachel remained married to me. The first years of marriage, as I look back, what a nightmare. It's only by God's grace on her life to bear with me, handle me. Even today, like, wow. So they need help. I was thinking about, we just had, last weekend we, we had a wedding, a uh, uh, a young lady from this church got married to a young man. Do you think that she knows how to love her husband? Do you think she knows how to love her husband? Do you think that the young man knows how to love her, his wife? They need help. They need help from older, godly people. And you look at our, our culture, our society, and you see the young women coming to church. They're coming from, I, I talk about this flood of social media, and all these young women are coming out of this social media culture and you see these young christian wives having social media relationships with all sorts of people guys from high school old boyfriends do you think that's good do you think that's a way of loving your husband cultivating relationships through social media with old boyfriends and, and, and old guy friends they need older women you see the younger women posting unnecessary pictures, creating foolish TikTok videos. And I found out, I didn't know what that thing was that I was doing that last Sunday. And I was told that's Instagram. I had no idea that Instagram is that thing that you keep just scrolling pictures. So now I know. So they need help from older godly women. They need to be taught that they belong to their husbands, that their beauty, their femininity should not be shared with the world. It's for their man, their husband. Younger Christian women need help from more mature ones, the godly ones, to understand the importance of submission to a local church. So here I, I'm, I'm bringing what I heard from other women, what they, what they wish they had learned from older godly women that never taught them. And one thing was, I wish I had learned earlier in my life the importance of being in submission and accountability to a local church. And the older women need to be teaching that. They need to be taught how to talk and discuss things, the hard things with their husband in a respectful manner. They need to learn to find their identity ultimately in Jesus Christ. Younger women, they cannot try to find their identity in their husbands. They're going to hurt you. Their identity is in Christ Jesus. They need to learn that they will love their husbands most when they love Jesus above all. So we talk about idolatry last Lord's Day with the, the older women. Uh, and, and sometimes, unwillingly, the younger women make their husbands an idol too. And you cannot, you can only have Jesus Christ, the triune God, as your Lord and Master. So let's move because the time is flying. The time is flying here. And 
Let's see, love their children. So we saw they're supposed to be lovers. They're supposed to love their husbands, not only their husbands, but their children. And Paul used a very similar word here, philotechnos. Philos, phileo, and technon from children, the combination of children lovers. So let me ask you, is Paul talking about a friendly love or a sacrificial love of mothers towards their children? So please, I, I, I'll be very honest. I remember one time, long time, long time ago, I was writing a sermon. I had pages just writing about this distinction between agape and phileo and how cool that was. The agape was the sacrificial love. And I remember that same week I had a book from D.A. Carson, Exegetical Fallacies. And I'm reading and he's like saying that it's a fallacy to try to split between agape and phileo because the Bible used agape and phileo as synonyms. I had literally to get all those 10 pages and throw into the garbage and restart something else. And I have seen people abusing this idea of, oh, uh, uh, there's the agape, there's the phileo. No. You can see right here. Phileo is a synonym to agape. They're supposed to love their children. And we would not expect Paul to say that, right, to the younger women that they need to learn how to love their children. Ma, we... Women in general are much more nurturing than men. But remember, because of sin, they need to be taught how to truly, how to biblically love their children. In the first century, during this movement of the new Roman wives and the new Roman women, the women were encouraged to use contraceptives. And if the baby was conceived, they were encouraged to abort, kill the baby in order to enjoy their freedom. Very similar to our days. And for those women who have done that, there is much forgiveness in Christ. Christ is always ready and eager to forgive. I like what Robert Yarbrough says. He writes about this. An age in which slaughter of the unborn through abortion is internationally rampant should not find it hard to imagine a situation in which mothers need to be called back to the protection and promotion of their children. So, there's so much misconception about love, and especially the love towards children. For some mothers, to be loving is to spoil their children. For some women, for some mothers, to be loving means to spoil their children. Other women think that it's loving to let their children make decisions. So suddenly, they are making these very important decisions as to how much time they spend on TV, social media, phones, friends, where they go. So, so many young mothers have no clue how to raise their kids for the glory of God and the well-being of the society. You think about the raising, the, the disciplining, the correction of the children are all expressions of love. Proverbs says, Whoever spares the rod, whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. So a loving education is paradoxical. A loving education, you show your hate by not using the rod, and you show your love by disciplining the child. 
the hard work of disciplining the child a hundred times for the same sin. And sometimes it can be tempting just to be like, ah, forget it. And you need the older women to come and encourage you. You're doing great. Keep doing it. Here's a better way. Here's how you can do that. Our culture is all about not disciplining, not spanking in love, not rebuking, but it's instead all about spoiling the children, right? We have a society of spoiled children. Robert Shaw, he wrote a book, and he's not writing from a Christian perspective. He, the title of the book is The Epidemic, The Rot of American Culture, Absentee and Permissive Parenting, and the resultant plague of joyless, selfish children. And he writes, Shaw writes, he says, For far too many children today are stolen, unfriendly, distant, preoccupied, and even unpleasant. They whine, nag, throw tantrums, and demand constant attention from their parents, who are spread too thin to spend enough time with them. Feeling guilty and anxious, the parents in turn soothe their kids with unhealthy snacks, fetish clothing, toys, and movies and media. And then he says, A host of new, of new clinical diagnoses have been invented to explain why children seem totally spoiled, untrained, and unsocialized, and in an incredibly large number of children have been diagnosed with ADHD and bombarded with psychoactive drugs. So instead of looking at the parents and saying, you need to discipline your children, it's much easier to just give a blame on the brain, give some drugs. Now we also have the gentle parenting, right? <coughs> That's the new, the new movement, the gentle parenting. And we are all about gentle parenting. We all want to be gentle parents, gentle husbands, gentle wives, gentle mothers, amen? But this movement has nothing to do with that. This gentle parenting is actually to do what? You should not spank your child. You should not discipline your children. I saw a book called Jesus, the Gentle Parent. Gentle Christian Parenting. And I sent a picture to Ben, to Ben Croker, and he said that uh, much of the headache, uh, uh, his job, so much of the pain that he has to deal with is because of this type of parenting. Uh, parents do not discipline their children any, anymore. And we need to be reminded that gentle spanking, and sometimes the young mothers need to be reminded that gentle spanking in love is very loving. It's very loving. We all have heard that proverb, Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go, even when he's old, he will not depart from it. And sadly, we have misunderstood what this text means. The Hebrew literally says, train up a child in his own way, meaning his own way and not the way of the Lord. And that's what we're seeing in our culture, people training their children their own way, the way of the child. Gordon Humberg, he says, Proverbs 22.6 is not so much a promise as it is a solemn warning, a solemn warning. Parents, if you train up your child according to his own way, in other words, if you, quit, if you quit the hard work of loving discipline and just give in and let your child have his own way, you will reinforce his sinful procl proclivities to such a degree that apart from supernatural intervention, even when he's old, he will not depart from it. 
And that's what we see in our society. That's what we see in our society. You look around and you see the fruit of training a child his own way. And when they become older, they continue being self-centered, demanding, annoying old people, just like when they're young, because they are never trained. And the young moms are being bombarded with these things. That's why they need the older godly women to help them. So much of the parenting today is about friendship and being buddies. We're buddies. So you see uh, fathers treating their sons as buddies. Hi, buddy. What do you want, buddy? Buddies don't spank each other. Buddies don't discipline each other. Right? The same with women. You see some, some young moms thinking that they're like 14-year-old getting their nails done. And that's all good, wonderful. We need to have friendship. But then they start living like they were 14-year-old. It's wonderful. Go get your nails done. Go have fun with your daughters. That's a beautiful thing. But when you treat that as your main goal in parenting to be a friend and not to be a mother, you're missing the point. And they're being bombarded in our culture with this idea that the parents are friends, buddies. The mothers will show their love for their children ultimately by shepherding their hearts with the gospel and pointing them to the Lord Jesus. The greatest need of any child is the greatest need of anybody in the world to be saved from their sins. Therefore, the greatest sign of love and that's why the older women must be always wisening up the younger ones is to gospel, gospel, gospel on these children. That's what they need. Amen? So, we see that the order is important. The order is very important here. Paul says that the younger women, the older women are supposed to help the younger women to love their husbands first and then love their children. Sadly, so many Couples have inverted this thing, and one spouse loves the children more than the other spouse. And that's mess up. And the kids know. The kids know when they're the kings of the home. And you don't want to have a, a, a child or a children-centered home. You want to have a gospel-centered home, and you want to have a marriage-centered home. Because the marriage is the picture of the gospel. And you don't want to have a pet-centered home either. And the kids know, they know if, if mommy loves the kids more than the daddy, they know how to manipulate. And they know how to create havoc in the family. And they're going to grow up thinking that they're the kings and queens of the universe. I know of couples, I remember dealing with one in Brazil, a uh, husband came to me, just... I don't know what to do. My wife does not want to sleep with me. She just wants to sleep with the kids in bed. And it was just this weird thing because it, I, I understand if it's a season the baby's sick, it, it needs to take care. I'm not talking. It just became this life pattern where the kids took over the husband's place. That, that, that's not good. That's not healthy. And the kids know, and they're going to be messing up. And they're even messing up the gospel picture of the love of the husband and the wife together. So, precious sisters, all the women here, you see how the life that the Lord Jesus is calling you to live 
is impossible to be lived if you think the church is coming to this building from 9.30 or to from 10 o'clock to 12 p.m. You can't. You cannot live this life if you think the church is just showing up here on Sundays for two hours. It requires investment in the lives of the people in the church. And I think that the mass and the wreckage that we see in so many Christian families and churches in great part due to the superficial and unbiblical view of church that America holds today. And we do not see this type of relationship in the life of the church anymore. Where there is this caring, this wisening up of both parties coming together. Remember that Paul says nothing about the youth ministry or the youth pastors raising and training the younger ones. Mm -mm. It's the older ones who are supposed to come alongside. To borrow Dietrich Bonhoeffer's title, Life Together. That's what the church needs, life together. So, sisters, we have here, we're starting walking through this portrait of what a beautiful, godly, attractive woman in the eyes of the Lord is like. And if you are in Christ, He enables you to be like that. Look at verse 11. Look at verse 11, chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all, even you young women, teaching you to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The grace of Christ in you empowers you to be what He commands you to be. Amen? And you have His Holy Spirit, you have His Word, and you have other Sisters in Christ to help you to be what He calls you to be. And let me remind you, love Jesus. That's for all of us. Love Jesus. Treasure Jesus above all. Even above your spouse. Or better, especially about your spouse, above your spouse. Rachel loves me best when she loves Christ more than she loves me. When she loves Jesus more than she loves me, then she loves me in the best way. And the same for all of us. Love Christ, treasure Christ. And consequently, you will love well others. And it doesn't matter your upbringing. Think about the women in Crete. They did not have Christian parents. The grace of Christ in you transforms you and you have other mothers in the church. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we, we humble ourselves before you and we ask you to help us. We know that the culture, the society, is bombarding us with lies. But we have your truth. So help us to embrace the truth 
Help us to love your truth. Help us to apply your truth, Lord. Because it's only your truth that set us free. The lies of our culture only enslaves us, only harms us, only kills us. But it's this hard truth of the Bible that actually sets us free. And how we need that, Lord. So please give us, all of us, humble hearts to be learners. We need to be better learners. We need to be better lovers. So help us, O oh Lord. Because we want to glorify you. We do, we do not want to defame your name. We do, do not want to bring dishonor to you, Lord. So please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.